We've been teaching through the, um, the book of Proverbs, and I say that to multiple people, and pretty consistently, I'd say more often than not, the answer that I get or response I get is I've never heard somebody preach through the book of Proverbs. And I think that, uh, that, that has borne out in my research. It's not a book that's preached from very often. And uh, in my own studies and preparation, I can see some of the reasons why. It's a book that um, when we teach on it, when we read it, can easily be mistaken for a moralistic approach to religion. If you do these things, then these other things will happen. Whether good or bad. If you do these bad things, these bad things will happen. If you do these good things, these good things will happen. That is the approach in general of religion uh, internationally, worldwide. It's the accusation that's oftentimes leveled at religion and Christianity in particular. It is the, um, not only the, the opiate of the masses, as Karl Marx famously said, but also a, a constrainer of the masses, a, a, a tool used by those in power to exercise control over other people by instructing them on what to do. Proverbs gives us those clear instructions, directives. They're given by one who is in power, God himself, intending to control and direct. The difference, of course, between what is oftentimes thought of as moralistic religion and the religion that Jesus calls true religion or the religion that's presented in the Bible is that the, the latter is in the context of relationship with a God who knows us, who made us, who loves us and cares for us. It's also in the context of a relationship that is established over and over again with a love that is steadfast and continues even in the face of many failings on our side. It is a a direction, a a correction that's meant to convict the heart that requires much of us, but is more like the teacher or the coach that we all had at some point in our lives who was more than just fair, was, was good and knew us, knew how much we were capable of and so he or she pushed us further than most people did knew that to let us settle for a half-hearted effort was not beneficial for anyone, most importantly for ourselves. Wisdom, as the Bible presents it, is a very different thing than the wisdom of the nations around Israel at the time. Wisdom, as Jesus presents it, is a different thing than what the wisdom of the world even says today. Oftentimes, those wisdoms align. In fact, Solomon became famous internationally because of his wisdom, because wisdom was something that was valued, not just among the God followers, but wisdom was valued among all kinds of cultures in the ancient world. It was sort of the Olympics of the ancient world. They competed in wisdom. 
Whose wisdom was better? Whose wisdom proved out? Oftentimes it was measured by the amount of territory that was controlled or the amount of wealth the nation had as a whole or sometimes even the king had in particular. So wisdom even today shares many things in common and is appealing to those outside of the church. And oftentimes you hear that in conversations. I remember one conversation with a neighbor who said, I just look at your family and I want what, they, what you have. Even though she was not a believer and is not a believer and never, to my knowledge, expressed any faith in the God of the Bible. At the same time, wisdom, as God presents it, his directions oftentimes stands opposed to the cultures around us, is different from the nations around us, especially in the ancient world when it came to issues of control and power and wealth, where those things were agents for effective ruling. The Bible presents leadership as a servant role call to care for others and put the interests of others ahead of your own. Again, this is something that oftentimes the world around us gives some lip service to, but when pressed, it is the autonomy of the self and the lifting up of the self that takes the ultimate position in life is the primary motivator and also the source of solace. Do you love yourself is the first question in modern wisdom. With that introduction, let's read chapter 4. It's broken up roughly into three sections, 1 through 9, and then 10 through 19, and then 20 through 27. And that's the breakup that we'll look at the passage uh, in as, as we look through it. So here now, this is God's word. Hear, O sons, a father's instruction, and be attentive that you may gain insight, for I give you good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching. When I was a son with my father, tender, the only one in the sight of my mother, he taught me and said to me, Let your heart hold fast my words. Keep my commandments and live. Get wisdom. Get insight. Do not forget and do not turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her and she will keep you. Love her and she will guard you. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. And whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly, and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. Hear, my son, and accept my words, that the years of your life may be many. I have taught you the way of wisdom. I have led you in the paths of uprightness. When you walk, your step will not be hampered, and if you run, you will not stumble. Keep hold of instruction. Do not let it go. go. Guard her, 
for she is your life. Do not enter the path of the wicked and do not walk in the way of the evil. Avoid it and do not go on it. Turn away from it and pass on. For they cannot sleep unless they have done wrong. They are robbed of sleep unless they have made someone stumble. For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to hear my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them, and healing to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Put away from you crooked speech, and put devious talk far from you. Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. This is God's word. We pray with me. O Lord, would you direct our sight and open our ears and soften our hearts that he, we will hear and get wisdom and get insight and know you in your ways more fully today that we would love you more as you have first loved us. We ask this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. As I said earlier, Proverbs can be a difficult book not only to teach from, but to hear from. The mark of a good sermon, Martin Lloyd-Jones said, was that it convicts the heart of the pastor. It applies the gospel to the teacher. It plays out in my own experience. I know it's a good sermon when I have received and heard it and been ministered to in the process of preparing it and sometimes even delivering it. Proverbs, we have to be careful because sometimes it convicts the heart and we don't feel the, the healing that was spoken of in, this, in this, this passage, this letter. This is in the book of Proverbs, but it's still a letter from a father to a, to a son. And so I need to be careful that I don't speak of it as a proverb. But in this letter, he says, wisdom is like a healing that comes to the flesh. And oftentimes we can be overwhelmed in the conviction of our sin and the guilt of our lives. The many places that we failed, the small things that we forgot to do or didn't do, the wondering, what if I only had done this? 
this shows up in my experience with being a chaplain for the police department. And some of the time in those questions, people ask, what if, if only I had done this? And it's the same type of question that we all ask. What if, if only I had done this? Oftentimes life can be overwhelming. And when you hear these are the things you should do, we need to be careful that we don't hear those and mistake God's voice for saying, because you didn't do these things in the past, I've withdrawn some of my love for you. I love you less because you've not done those things. But we also at the same time press forward into wisdom because we know in wisdom is godly character. Is a call that comes to us very consistently and persistently to walk on a certain path, to guard our hearts from the devious paths, or sometimes the paths that even look attractive. It may seem a bit of a shortcut, or even something with a view. But in the end, the writer of Proverbs, Solomon to his son, is warning those, those other paths seem good at the time, but they are the way to death, to destruction. They slowly harden the heart over time. One of the things that the book of Proverbs is concerned for is not the big decisions in life, but the many small decisions that we're faced with day after day that shape who we are in the future. C.S. Lewis in The Mere Christianity is talking about the, the nature of sin and why sin is so important to identify in our lives and why even small faults in our lives today have such a big place of concern in the scriptures and in God's care and concern for us. He explains these things may in a short run, a few years, be just small inconveniences for you or probably for somebody else. But even those small things over time oftentimes can grow. And even in the course of a lifetime of 80 years, he says, it may be a tolerable thing, something that is advantageous even for you. You gain something from it. You can control, tame the small beast. But he says, if you consider eternity, that God has made us for eternity, and consider the trajectory of those things, even those small beasts or buds, over those many more eons, will eventually grow into something that is a heinous, dangerous beast, not only for yourself, but for others. Become all-consuming, he says, it is important that we recognize sin for what it is in our lives and nip it in the bud. For in doing that, we recognize that we're made for eternity. We recognize that the promise of God is for not an eternity of life as it exists today, with suffering, with pain, 
where the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer. But the promise of eternity is a place where there is no sin and no decay, no suffering. It is a promise of hope. And hope is essential for us as Christians. Later we'll find in the book of Proverbs that hope is something that should not be deferred. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. You say, well, I have to wait for all kinds of things. Isn't the call to patience as well? The call is to patience. And oftentimes we wait to receive certain blessings and certain things and material possessions and and, uh, even relationship restoration. But we're not called to wait on the hope that comes from the promises of God. When you exercise patience, let me ask you this, are you setting aside hope? These are different things. When you exercise patience, are you setting aside hope? When we do that, our fears increase. Our faith is challenged and is diminished. Our trust in God and his promises is reduced. Wisdom, wisdom looks at the more nuanced aspects of life. Wisdom is concerned with this question in ancient times, why do the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer? That's the subject of the book of Job, especially, and it's also in Ecclesiastes. Many of the Psalms address this as well. Proverbs will get there a little bit. Proverbs, though, looks more at the nuanced decisions in life, not the clear right and wrong, do I murder this person or not. Those have clear instructions in Scripture. But oftentimes we face more nuanced questions. Do I trust this person with critical information? Should I align myself with this person in a business relationship? What kind of person should I marry? Are my decisions honoring God or honoring myself? And are those things in alignment? Or are they at odds? Many more questions you could ask about wisdom. And Proverbs is famously full of all kinds of these Questions that seem to be almost at odds, most famous of which is in Proverbs 26, where it says in two consecutive verses, answer a fool according to his folly, and then immediately afterward, do not answer a fool according to his folly. For in one situation, it is called on to show a fool his folly by speaking. In another situation, it is called on for us to remain silent and not give any more fuel to the folly of the fool. The answer to that question isn't necessarily found in today's passage, but as we go through the book of Proverbs, we find that God, through Solomon, is teaching his son, and us by extension, 
to make those difficult choices in life. And we should make no mistake about this, that in today's culture, we probably face more significant decisions than than people face at any time in history. When you think about many people in history had their spouse chosen for them by their parents. Many people in history had their vocations chosen for them by their place in life in the community. Again, their family. Many people faced few decisions, and I'm not just talking about the trifling decisions of what you're going to have for lunch and the menu of 20 different options. But we face decisions that have life impact. What am I going to study today that will, actually, will, will potentially and probably have an impact on what I do for the rest of my life? What friends am I going to uh, associate with today that are going to shape my decisions for the rest of my life? Now, that's not to say that we're set on that path and we can't return to the right path, but it is to say that we face forks in the road all the time, even from a very young age. Kids, if you're sitting in here and listening, if you're not listening, pay attention right now. We face decisions from a very young age that have a significant impact on the trajectory of our lives. And so the, the wisdom of Solomon is even more applicable to us today than probably many people in his own kingdom in his own time. Now, where does wisdom come from and how do we get it? Just look briefly at these three different sections and notice three things. The first thing in the first nine chapters is the call of wisdom or the call to wisdom. The second thing in the next uh, chapter, verses 10 through uh, 19, is this metaphor of the path and the choosing the right path. And then the third thing I want you to see is in verses 20 through 27, the use of bodily language and heart and eyes and ears and flesh and all healing and feet and all of that to show how wisdom is all of life. And so we've got the call of wisdom, the path of wisdom, and, and roughly the, the heart or the embodiment of wisdom laid out here in this letter. Now, here's the first thing to notice. Did you pick up on this? I mean, one thing you might have noticed is that here Solomon is directing his to not just one son, but to the sons. And we've had conversations about that, but I don't want to focus on that too much. Here are sons, a father's instruction. This, by the way, by extension, is also applicable to men and women, boys and girls, father, uh, uh, sons and daughters, and if we understand the, the specificity of this being a king teaching, a male king teaching his, his successor, a male son, then we can step back from it also and better, to, better apply it to each of our circumstances in life, whether a male or female or older or younger or a king or a baker or uh, uh, um, uh, whatever, whatever your vocation may be. So this is broad, O sons, hear, O sons, the Father is instruction. Be attentive that you may gain insight. And then he goes in verse 4 
to begin to quote, who was it? His own father, David. When I was a son, verse 3, when I was a son with my father, tender and the only one in the sight of my mother, Bathsheba, David taught Solomon these words that are quoted from the rest of verse 4 down to the end of verse 9. You see what's happening here? This is a multi-generational passing on of wisdom. It didn't begin with Solomon. Solomon's not just getting this directly from God, thus they is the Lord. Solomon is receiving from his father, or passing on to his son what he received from his father. And this are a few important points. One is the multi-generational nature of wisdom and faith, relationship with God, the importance of speaking truth to our children. And David obviously did that with Solomon. The importance also of what we've received from another being faithful to pass on, as Paul instructed his apprentice Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.2, be faithful to pass on what things you've heard me say. Pass on. Don't let, don't let the wisdom that you have received in your life from wherever it is, maybe it was from a parent, but maybe it was or parents, or, but maybe it was from a mentor or another pastor or even a friend. Don't become the, the, the dam of those things flowing on to other people. This is really a, a fairly challenging thing to do because oftentimes we find people who really don't want to hear. Oftentimes we sit down with somebody else and it's an awkward conversation to enter into the things of God. We're afraid of upsetting the cart if we go there with, with somebody. And wisdom, wisdom tells us to see if the person is going to have an attentive ear or not. Test the waters. Before I became a pastor, I was uh, in, in uh, engineering and, and really a business application of, of, of engineering for 10 years. And in making the transition, considering it, I, I remember talking with various pastors and, uh, and, and one of the questions that came up was, you know, people treat me differently when I'm at a party and they say, what do you do? And I say, I'm a pastor. And I thought, okay, I can somewhat understand what you're saying. But then on the other side of things, when I became a pastor, I understood better what they meant, right? It does change the instruction. All of a sudden, the language changes. The stories that are told are different. You can tell who has a feeling of guilt and who is okay with themselves, or maybe just doesn't care. But one of the things that I learned also, and I think maybe some of my experience before helped me to see this, was that when I just threw out the word, I'm a pastor, and watched what other people did with that information, it told me right away, all right, we can go here and talk about important things in life, Okay, we're going to stay over here and not go further. You see, it really didn't put me necessarily in a position of awkwardness. It put me in a position of understanding. That I could have compassion for somebody who's over here. I could be willing to enter in with somebody who's wanting and ready and needing to go into something deeper. 
Now, even beyond that, there's a time and place for everything. And there's a time and place in a party where somebody even who wants to go deeper, we're just going to stay at small talk and make some good jokes. And that's, that's appropriate as well. But wisdom, wisdom knows how to ask those questions or even give a one-word answer on pastor and know what path to take with a person. How they're going to respond. But it also takes wisdom to know what that answer is. How do you, not a pastor, most people in this room, answer a question or even provide some type of litmus test in your conversations? See if people want to go someplace deeper with those things. It's not always an easy thing to ask, but consider it. Practice it. You're going to mess up some of the time. Be willing to enter the awkward places. When we enter into the awkward places in life, oftentimes we find that we can help other people more significantly and we can also grow ourselves. Solomon is teaching the words that he learned from David, this important lesson. I've got some places I'm going to go and they're not all right on topic, so follow me along. This is what he essentially teaches him. Go after wisdom with a dogged determination. Get wisdom. Get insight. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom and whatever you do, get. Whatever you get, get insight. That word get, by the way, I think it's a poor word. It's kind of a cheap English word, isn't it? I mean, it reminds me of that old milk commercial, got milk, you, you know, it just is simplistic and it's, it's not very good. But the word in Hebrew is really to per- purchase or to acquire, to, to, to use what you have to get something. And earlier in Proverbs, we've seen multiple places where, where the advice Solomon is giving is pursue this thing as if it was the most important thing in your life. And now this is different for different people. For some, the most important thing in their life is finding a position of power and influence, of being significant or being the best, that, that, of best at something of everybody around. For other people, that, that thing is money and the security that they feel like money can bring them in life. For still others, it's finding, good, uh, finding a spouse or even a good friend or friends and having those relationships there. And all these things can be good things to have power, to have money, to have influence, to be the best at something, to have a, a spouse who is good, to have good friendships. But over and over again, the warning that we find throughout Scripture is that these things that are good can easily become the things that are ultimate in our lives and take the place of our understanding of God and our relationship and intimacy with God. And when those do that, they, they, they become dangerous things. They become idols. They become things that can, can damage us because they can't really fulfill all the things we're looking for them to do. But that, that illustration of those things, those things that you pursue with all of your heart, is the illustration that he says, go after wisdom with that type of dogged determination. And then he says, and he turns the language a little bit from, a little bit more specifically to the language of, of relationship and specifically marriage. What does he say? He says, verse 8, prize her highly and she will exalt you. 
She will honor you if you embrace her. She will place on your head a graceful garland. She will bestow on you a beautiful crown. And so that dogged determination of of acquiring, of getting something, is pushed forward, is continued into the language of nurturing. A continual nurturing of holding on to, of caring for, of, of fostering the health in this other person. This, by the way, this, by the way, is probably the greatest insight into marriage that I can give you from the Bible is that when you marry somebody else, your chief goal is to make that other person the best person they can be. And that doesn't mean that your call is to change them to serve you. That is the greatest mistake in marriage. But the greatest call is to follow the example that Jesus, that Paul gives, lays out that Jesus gave in Ephesians 5, and that is for husbands to lay down your life for your wife. Love them as Christ loved the church. Pursue their goodness. Lift them up. Encourage their spirit and all of their giftings. Don't, uh, don't squelch their enthusiasm. Don't feel like it is your job to be their parent or your job to be their God, but rather to delight in the other, to embrace them, to exalt, or excuse me, prize to prize, and then she will exalt you. The, the, the relationship and the continual, continual nurturing of that relationship, the pursuit of, of wisdom is, is one of the most beautiful examples of how we can foster and develop and nurture a healthy marriage in our lives. Pursue it with a dogged determination. Nurture it with all of your work, your energy. Not just your marriage relationship, but in particular, wisdom, which is the knowledge of God applied to this life. When we have wisdom, we know godly wisdom. We know God better. When we know God better, we can live this life more fully and and, and in a much more fulfilling way. The next section goes into this illustration of the path, which we've seen multiple times in Proverbs. This illustration of the right path and the wrong path, a dangerous path and a safe path. Oftentimes in Scripture is presented as the straight and narrow or the righteous path or even a highway prepared for travel. Roads in the ancient world, of course, were very different than what we experienced, but we still know something of the danger of a dirt road at night full of potholes and, uh, and, and, and even trees on the side. And the difference between that and an interstate highway that we can drive on with relative safety and security. The path of the one is dangerous. It may be adventurous for a time, and I'm not saying don't take some of those actual physical roads, but the illustration warns us don't take the path of the wicked. Avoid it, verse 15. Turn from it. Pass on. For here's the path that those small decisions we talked about earlier can lead to eventually. Verse 16, did you hear it? Some, they who have traveled on that road, they they can't even sleep unless they've done wrong. 
They're robbed of sleep unless they have made someone stumble. Now what this is getting at is that there are those in the world who are genuinely out to do evil to other people, who have made their goal to take from other and others and live off of them like a parasite does, harming the one they're taking from, not a symbiotic relationship. And those small decisions that we make over life eventually grow into a big one. Tim Keller in his sermon on this passage tells a story that he read in an article when he was young, back in the 70s, um, and it just stuck with him. It was the story of a a man who had been arrested and was doing uh, years in prison for uh, killing a child. He had run over this child and in his fear, he ran from the scene and this man was being interviewed from his prison Um, and recounting how it wasn't just that decision that had changed the course of his life. But he was going back to a story of a time when in in his childhood, he had gone into his parents' room and taken a gold watch out of his, his father's drawer uh, because he loved this, the beauty of it. And he, was, he was holding it and playing it. He dropped it and he cracked the watch. And he was fearful of his father's response. And, and so he put the watch back in. And when the father came and found the watch, called the whole family together, he said, who broke the watch? And I don't know if the father was abusive or not. That wasn't part of the story that I heard. It's a whole nother kind of another story. But the son... Fearful, put the kept silent, didn't say a word. And in the interview, this now man was recounting how his life had been shaped by these small decisions to conceal, to cover up things in life that might get him in trouble. And when, when, when in this moment he hit this child by accident, he said, and ran over him. His first instinct shaped over all of that, those years was to, to flee, to cover it up. And of course, a hit and run is going to get you far more punishment than to stay at the scene and, and, and accept it and to tell the truth. See, these... These paths, eventually, now, this man still seemed to have some understanding of himself, and he maybe through his, his punishment had, had come back to it. But what, what's being described in, in these verses 15 and 16 and, and 17 is a person who has, has, has continued down those paths of making the many small decisions that eventually shape them into a person who, who almost can't live if they're not doing harm to another person, or at least getting the benefit that they can get from another person. And maybe you're in that position now. Maybe you feel like you're doing that. Like you live your life off of other people. You're wondering, how can I break the pattern? How can I get out of this place? I said the first step is to recognize that you're addicted to the sweetness, the taste, the bread, and the wine 
that come from these actions. Those things actually you experience as a great thing. You have some conviction that the way you're getting them is wrong, but you're addicted to the things that seem to come from it. And those things, the appeal of those things has hardened your heart from truly loving somebody else around you or the others that you're harming. And you're blinded. The impact that you're having on them. But you say, I don't know how to get out of it. I don't know how to choose the right path. The book of Proverbs doesn't oftentimes really get you back on the right path. The book of Proverbs tells you more about choosing the right path from the beginning. But you have to look at Scripture as a whole, the story, the narrative as a whole, to understand that God is constantly calling His people back from choosing wrong paths. More than that, he doesn't begrudgingly do it. He doesn't say, oh, you again. Won't you ever learn? Why don't you just get back and, and do the right thing? The picture that comes over and over again in Scripture is that after a time of of experiencing some of the pain that we bring on ourselves by these decisions, and God does let us experience some of that pain and His sovereignty and His compassion for us, He restores us in a way that presents to us and to the world around us the truth that He finds us beautiful, a delight, a child of his own. The passage we read earlier from Isaiah 55 in our call to worship is is, as follows in many chapters, Isaiah 1 through 40, of God explaining the consequences of the actions of many people from his own people to the nations around him. If you think Proverbs is difficult to hear taught from or to teach on, try teaching on Isaiah 1 through 40. I mean, it is oftentimes feels like it's hopeless. And as pastors, we're not called to just linger in the hopelessness. We're rather called to present the truth of Scripture in the context of the whole story. And the whole story is this continual, continual process of God calling a people to himself. Of them fleeing, running away, trying different ways, not listening to his voice of wisdom. And then God calling them back. Going after them. Running to them when, they, when he sees them coming back to him. You hear it in the wilderness as God's with his people and he brings them into the promised land. You hear it with King David as he fails in various ways and still God uses him and uses his family to bring the Savior. You hear it, of course, in the story of the prodigal son 
The first step, the first step is recognize, of, of turning, if you're in that place or in that place, is to recognize that the bread, the sweetness that you're experiencing is a false sweetness. It is a counterfeit of the true thing. You may be in a place where you feel like you're living life in a dream. And many people who have been addicted to something and then emerge from it describe that they feel like they're alive again for the first time, that they see the flowers, they see the light. They've been in this deep darkness. But the second thing and the most important thing to know is how God responds when we turn back to Him. And it is never, it is never Him turning His back on you. Or saying, if you just show a little bit more penance, a little bit more remorse, then, then I will love you. It is always, it is always Him embracing us and walking through the difficult things that it takes to oftentimes break patterns of sin in life. It's Him calling others alongside of us as well to walk with us alongside these things and to wrestle with truth and lie that we hear and we we are tempted to believe. The last portion of this proverb, this this letter that uh, Solomon is writing or reading or speaking to his, his sons uses all of these languages, all of this language of the body and the whole being, and we've talked about this in the past, about how pursuing wisdom and pursuing God is not just a, a little part of your time, this part of the week, or this time of the day, or, or this thing. It is understanding that God's wisdom impacts and applies to every aspect of life. There is no separation of sacred and secular vocation or parts of life. For all of life and every vocation that is legal or legitimate, every vocation is sacred in its calling. The whole body is sacred in its work. And the simple call at the end of this passage is to recognize it really points to the whole body, but it centers in on the, the, on the heart. And the heart is this confusing thing. thing we, we tend to think of in our kind of uh, post-Greek understanding of separation of mind and body, spirit and uh, body and soul, as the soul being good and the body being this, this evil thing. Or sometimes we separate the mind from the thinking and the heart from the feeling, the emotional thing. But in the language of the Bible... The heart is the center of understanding and affection. And that word affection is probably the most helpful thing as we consider the work of Proverbs and these introductory letters leading up to the Proverbs proper that start in chapter 10. And what Solomon is most concerned with what God is most concerned with is that we set our deepest heart affections on God himself. The anthropomorphic language of wisdom, by the way, wisdom portrayed as a, as a woman here actually has voice when we get to Proverbs chapter eight and speaks and calls. And it's a, it's an illustration of God himself 
the, the woman wisdom is not a, a one-for-one uh, with God or God himself, but it is part of who God's, what God's character is, the speaking of this wisdom. And what Solomon is saying is what so many others have said, what you set your heart on is what you are going to pursue in life. And what you pursue in life is what's going to determine your path, the fulfillment of your life. Great modern prophet Woody Allen said, the heart wants what the heart wants. What God is saying is, your heart is going to want things that are not going to be good for you. Desire the things that give you life. God's wisdom leads us to life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you love us. That you direct us. That you teach us. That you restore us. That you forgive us. That you delight in us. And that you have called us to do meaningful things in the work of your kingdom, your family, your creation. Father, help us to seek wisdom with all of our heart, to pursue it doggedly, and to nurture it continually. Help us to choose and to recognize the right paths and the wrong paths, the paths of life and the paths of death. And we ask this all in the powerful name of Jesus our Lord. Amen.